Hi, I'm Jane. I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, Jane. And first of all, I want to thank this convention for inviting us to be here with you this weekend. You're very generous and very human. <laughs> and thank you very much. I thought that was Jack's hat. Uh, uh, first of all, notice I'm sitting on a bar stool. I think it's appropriate at an AA Illinois convention. Why not? I developed in the last couple of months a sciatica nerve and a herniated disc, and it hurts. But I've also, in the last couple of days, I've realized something. I kind of have the same relationship to the sciatica nerve as I used to have to the alcoholic. <laughs> I, I'm powerless over it. And some days it hurts so bad that when I wake up in the morning, I'm sure that I'm going to step my foot on the floor and it's going to be all better because how bad can it get? And I always had this vision of Jack when he was particularly obnoxious one night of jumping up in the morning and saying, Gene, that's it. I was terrible last night. I treated you bad. I'm not going to do it anymore. And not. And that was a fantasy, too. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got here and uh, what's happened to us. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn. And uh, I was brought up on Long Island in a little town called Amityville. <laughs> I'm not the Amityville horror. Tomorrow morning, Jack may tell you different. Oh, I'm glad you came back, Cody. I wanted to tell everybody to notice you. You clean up beautiful. <laughs> he kind of, last night he looked like a cowboy. This morning to this evening, he looks like a gentleman caller. <laughs> uh, this was a very little town I was brought up in. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I was brought up by my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And I decided I wanted to leave home. Well, in those days, in that little town, you didn't just get an apartment. I don't even know if there was any apartments in that town. But you had two choices if you wanted to leave home. You either got married or moved to New York City and got a job. Well, at 17, I didn't feel that I was old enough to move to New York City and get a job, so I got married. <laughs> it's not a good motive. <laughs> I had a little girl, and when that marriage ended, which wasn't too soon, uh, too long after we got married, after that little girl was born, I did something that I was going to continue to do until I got to this program, and it was sit down and do some thinking. Now, I have come to the conclusion that second in destruction to the Al-Anon's drink, the alcoholic's drinking is the Al-Anon's thinking. And I did some thinking, and I said, okay, I made a mistake. Now, I'm going to move to New York City, I'm going to get a job, place to live. Um, I'll meet this really great guy. We'll get married. We'll move to the suburbs, probably Connecticut, because I came from Long Island. And we'll have a boy and a girl and a dog and a cat and a station wagon. And my husband will sit by the fire while I make dinner, read his paper. And we'll go to PTA meetings, the whole suburb thing. Now, I met Jack, so I'm going to tell you what really happened. <laughs> I did move to New York City, and I had to get a job, and I moved into a rooming house down in Greenwich Village. And it was one of those old brownstones that they had made into rooms, and as you went upstairs, the rooms got smaller, and I was on the top floor. And everybody, when you were in your room, you always left your door open, because if you close the door and you're inside, it's claustrophobic. So uh, I was just sitting there one night, and I just happened to glance out my door, 
and I see this cute little guy has moved in down the other end of the hall. Well, I didn't meet him right away, but every time he opened the door to his room, what a mess. He needed somebody. <laughs> and uh, one night I was sitting in my room, minding my own business, and, uh, you know, I, which is very unusual for me, by the way. And uh, he came walking down the hall. He had a quart of beer in one arm and a book of poetry in the other arm. And he came in my room, and he sat down, and he read me poetry, and he drank his beer. Now, he read me a poet named Dylan Thomas. I, I didn't know that night that Dylan Thomas had died of alcoholism in New York City. And I didn't know that Jack had come to take his place. But I don't know if it would have made that much difference. Because in the course of in between his poetry reading, I had taken his resume. And uh, he was the oldest of five children. He was Irish Catholic. He was from South Bend, Indiana. He'd graduated from Notre Dame. He was in the Army. And he was in New York because he was going to study at Columbia and Fordham. And he wanted to be an actor. Well, isn't that a great resume to move to the suburbs with? What more could you ask for? So I latched on to him. <laughs> he never had a chance. <laughs> and we got together right away. And that was 42 years ago. <laughs> uh, there was a woman in the meeting of Al-Anon that was there in the meeting last night. There she is. <laughs> She's been married for 46 years. And for 40 years, her husband drank. I, Jack would be dead. <laughs> he never would have made it. <laughs> I got all I could handle stand of him. But uh, so we got together. And uh, now Jack wanted, he was going to school and he was studying, but he was also doing a lot of acting. Well, you know, right away, I could tell something was wrong. Because about a year later, we were not on our way to the suburbs. We were still in New York. So I decided that, you know, and it was really true. I mean, all those actors and actresses he hung around with, you know, poor Jack. He would go in just to have one beer and then come home. And, you know, they wouldn't let him go. They kept talking to him and asking him questions. I mean, he couldn't be impolite, right? And Jack was also unique in another way. Jack never had more than two beers. I know, because he told me so. Sometimes I'd look at it and I'd say, two beers? God, I can stand more than that, you know. And uh, so I, I sat down and I did some thinking. Okay, we're not on our way to the suburbs. Something's wrong, right? Well, you know those Irish. A lot of kids. That's what must be wrong. So three more children, which made a total of four. We were still in New York, and we hadn't got to the suburbs, and those actors and actresses were still leading them astray, and I just about had it. I thought, this does it. I'm through. Well, if you've lived with an alcoholic, they are so lucky. Every time you do dance, sit down and you say to yourself, it's over. I'm not going to live like this anymore. Something happens. He came home and he said, you know, I got a job teaching in New Rochelle. Now, New Rochelle is not Connecticut, but it is the suburbs. So off we all moved to New Rochelle. And uh, I have to just give you a little background that I was brought up by this grandmother and great-grandmother. My perception, and I'm sure it may be wrong, was there was one bottle of whiskey in that house the entire time I was growing up. 
It was literally used for medicinal purposes, a little toothache, a tummy ache, you know, anything, uh, and for New Year's Eve. So I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. And when I first met Jack, his drinking did not bother me at all. He always kind of laughs at that because he'd been drinking for a number of years by the time he met me and been in a bit of trouble. But when I first met him, he was fun. My friends used to say, Gene, where'd you get that great guy? Because he used to be the life of every party. Well, every once in a while he'd drink too much and get out of hand, but didn't everybody? I did. We have a wonderful old alcoholic in uh, Southern California who's dead now, but he used to say, al really have it made. They get to drink and work the 12 steps, too. <laughs> and I was, I was drinking right along with him. You know, we were having a good time. We were going out, and it was great. And I don't know when I crossed over that invisible line to when I started saying things like, um, could you please wait till we get to the party to drink, Jack? Or when we got to the party, I'd start off very softly, uh, Jack, you've had enough. I used to sit around because I was trying to, doing some thinking, trying to figure out which drink it was that made him nasty on the way home. <laughs> I got to Al-Anon and heard about AA and found out it was the first one. <laughs> I could have watched him take the first drink and then had a good time at the party, you know. But I was sitting there watching him, figuring out which one was it that did it. I used to come up with all kinds of solutions, too. And he was always interested in my solutions. See, I didn't know he was trying to figure out what was wrong with him, too. And um, I sat him down one day. I said, I know what your problem is. And he said, what is it? I said, uh, it's white. Don't drink anything white. If you drink gin, vodka, white wine, white rum, it makes you nasty. So he said, oh, okay. So he drank bourbon, beer, red wine. He was happy. And I was happy, too, because I figured that was the answer. Till it... You know, every time I came up with a solution, it always backfired on me. Because the next time he got real mean, I thought, oh, he must have snuck some vodka, you know. <laughs> and uh, we had this thing starting to go where I was starting to get, you know, this, this line that I was crossing over when it was starting to bother me. You know, what was wrong with him? And I, if you don't know about the disease of alcoholism and you're married to an alcoholic, and they do things that are grandiose. They do things that are rebellious. You, they, you know, you don't, you don't understand it. I just always think he was just a little nuts, you know, a little eccentric. And I, I kind of liked it at first till it got annoying. And um, he would, you know, we would, we would go places, and uh, all of a sudden he'd start acting up. Well, I, I did a lot of Al-Anon before I got here. When he started acting up, I'd just leave him. He finally came home one night and said, you know, you got to quit leaving me all over the place, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he was, you know, and other things, strange things were happening. You know, when we, in the morning, I'd go out and get the newspaper and my husband off the porch, <laughs> bring them both in. Jim, if you, if you identify, you run out then, you run out real quick and you look around to see who saw, you know. Did anybody see me bring in the drunk, you know? And, uh, and uh, it really always amuses me. The whole neighborhood knew the man was a drunk. When he got sober, we became anonymous. God forbid anybody should know he's trying to get well. You know, we should have been anonymous before. <laughs> but this, <laughs> if I bring him in, you know, and put him in the bed, and 
I, I discovered a lot of things. I don't jack a lot of amends when I got to this program. I discovered real early that he really didn't remember what happened the night before. And I'd say to him in the morning, do you know what you did last night, Jack? He said, no, I'm sure you're going to tell me, though. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I made up a lot of it. Poor guy. <laughs> he would just, he, he would sometimes say, I really did that? Say, yeah, Jack, you really did. It's a shame. Those people will probably never talk to us again. <laughs> Funny part of it is, most people liked Jack. They all hated me. I was such a pain in the neck. Because <laughs> I was always nagging him and starting fights at your party and, you know. And uh, we were in New Rochelle for three years where Jack uh, taught. And at the end of the third year, he had to get tenure. And uh, he refused to do it because he wasn't going to go back to school for a credit. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he would do a thing like that. The whole town couldn't believe it, you know. They had he headlines in the newspaper. They picketed. Nobody could believe Jack wouldn't go back for one credit, but he wouldn't. And I didn't know about that part of the disease of alcoholism, and I really couldn't understand it. And, and it confused me, and it upset me, because I really liked him teaching. I really liked living there, and I thought we were there forever. And... Uh, after he lost that job, Jack had a habit of losing a lot of jobs. But we had developed an alcoholic Al-Anon relationship about his jobs. One year in New York, he had 32 jobs. We had an addendum on our income tax. <laughs> Most of my friends said that he was such a failure. I, I decided it was somebody really trying. But he would lose a job. And, you know, an Al-Anon has an instinct for living with an alcoholic peacefully. If they're happy, you're happy. If they're not happy, nobody's happy. So he'd come home and say, gee, I lost my job. And I'd say, oh, Jack, they lost the best short order cook they ever had in that restaurant. They're stupid. <laughs> or they lost the best ambulance driver at St. Vincent's. They lost the best of everything in that city 32 times in one year. <laughs> so when he came home and said, well, they're not going to renew my contract because I didn't get tenure, I said, well, you know, they just lost the best teacher they ever had. And you know, the strange thing about it is, I was not wrong about that. He was probably the best short order cook they ever had. He was so careful, it took you forever to get a sandwich, you know. <laughs> but as far as his teaching, he was wonderful. The kids loved him, especially the older kids that he was, you know, drinking with. But uh, <laughs> he, was, he was really good. So when, when that kind of fell apart, I was... This is when I really started thinking something's wrong with the way we're living. There's something wrong going on here. And he met up with an ex-movie star in Westchester County, and they were going to start a theater for Westchester County. And uh, that went on for about a year. And uh, at the end of the year, Jack wasn't really drinking. He was out of the house more than he was in. Uh, the theater fell apart. And... Uh, we didn't talk, we had, well, Jack made amends to that actress years later, but the, the whole thing just fell apart. And he came home, and he said, well, I got a job in Ohio. I'm going to direct a community theater there. I said, great, to myself. I did some thinking. I said, great. He goes to Ohio. I stay in New Rochelle. I take care of the kids, and I never see him again. So he kept telling me about all the plans. 
but he this was in August. He'd go to uh, Ohio, and by the holidays, he'd know whether he liked it, and then he'd send for the family. And uh, he had all these plans, and I just went, another Al-Anon thing, which I didn't know I was doing. I could say, uh-huh, uh-huh, that sounds good, that sounds good. And I was going one ear and out the other, because I had no intention of ever seeing that man after I took him to the airport, and he flew to Ohio. <laughs> I took him to the airport, and he flew to Ohio, <laughs> and uh, I heard him pitch in Alcoholics Anonymous when he was real new, and he talked about getting this job in Ohio and decided to leave his family forever. Now, that shocked me. <laughs> me leave him forever, but him leave me forever? <laughs> you know, but I hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, and uh, 30 days later, I got a phone call. It was the end of September. I got a phone call from Jack. Jane, the best place we've ever I've ever been. The theater's great. The people are wonderful. I've got a house to rent. You're going to love it. And then those three words, I need you. So I told everybody we were moving way out west. <laughs> I didn't know Ohio is back east. <laughs> we went to Ohio by train at night. And... Um, John was going to be six years old the next day, and he'd had some dental work done that, uh, that morning, and they'd given him gas. And uh, he was sick the whole night on the, tr on the plane, on the train. Uh, Christy was okay. Kathy was in the ninth grade, and Kathy cried the entire night because she was leaving her friends behind. Melinda was still a baby. The train was an hour and a half late, and Melinda cried for an hour and a half. We had the dog with us because they wouldn't take him in the baggage car. And I got off the train in Ohio. Guess who was not there to meet me? <laughs> I looked around and I said, what am I doing here? What happened to all my thinking? Uh, we were four years in Ohio. Jack was two years at this theater. He was really a successful director there. He was terrific. But he was a pain in the neck to them. <laughs> and they decided after two years, they'd take a little less success and a little more peace and quiet. And they didn't renew his contract. And uh, he got a job then, a really nice job, teaching, heading the theater department at a little town 20 miles away, Ohio Northern University. The only problem was it was a very small town, and it was a Methodist college that did not believe in drinking. Now, an alcoholic just has to hide a bottle. Do you ever try to hide a noisy Irish alcoholic in a little town? It was terrible. I thought that town was the cutest thing I ever saw when I first saw it. That lasted about 10 minutes. When I realized that the entire town knew what was going on in our house. You know, and I just, and, and things were happening to me by this time. I was just out of hand. All I did was yell and scream, and I was angry all the time. I'd th put the children to bed at night, and I'd tiptoe in, and I'd look at them, and I'd say, tomorrow I'm not going to be that way with them. Tomorrow I'm going to take care of those kids. We're going to do something that's fun with for them. And the next morning, we'd be eating breakfast, and one of them would drop one Rice crispy on the floor, and I'd be off and yelling again. And I didn't like me. I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like the way I was acting. I didn't like the way I felt inside. Because when I was yelling, I was saying, I don't want to be like this. The only thing I ever wanted to be in my life was a good mother and a good wife. And what am I doing? And uh, Jack taught there for two years. This was in the 60s. 
Jack became a hippie. He had long hair, Fu Manchu mustache. He used to wear a fringed leather vest. And he wore a peace symbol that one of the students made for him. It was made out of hammered iron. It was about this big. More, looked more like a weapon than a peace symbol. He organized 26 students on campus and was urging them to blow up the administration building. They didn't renew his contract. He came home and we all sat down and decided what to do next, and I took one look at the hippie and said, we better go to California. <laughs> so we flew our children out to California to some friends of ours that, were, that we had uh, met at Ohio Northern, and they were living out in Long Beach. So the children all flew out to Long Beach, and Jack and I had this great big old Chevy car, which we packed full, and we were going to drive across the country. We even had a cooler in the middle of the front seat. And uh, we started off, and uh, thats I did most of the driving. That's when I found out that Ohio is not way out west. Um, we started driving, and Jack had read about all these things in newspapers and magazines where in middle America they pick up hippies, throw them in jail, and nobody ever sees them again. So every time we got near any population, I drove, and he sat underneath the dashboard. <laughs> now, if you don't know about the disease of alcoholism, and you're driving a car, and your husband's under the dashboard, you got to think crazy. I kept thinking, how am I going to tell his mother I've had him committed? What city should I commit him in, you know? Because we're going along. And I'm, I'm driving along, and I'm looking at him. And, you know, being a good hippie and a good alcoholic, he, uh, at night, he used to stand on his head all night doing yoga. So here he was, under the dashboard in the day, standing on his head at night. I was confused. I always want to remember that ride, because if any one of you were to call me and say, you know, I'm going across the country, and this is what's going on in that car, I'd say, for God's sake, get out of the car, get another car, take a plane, a bus, leave them behind. But it never occurred to me till I got to this program that I ever had a choice. My aim was to get that guy to the West Coast and dump him in the Pacific. And, I, and actually, if the children weren't already there, I think I would have turned around and gone back the other way where I knew somebody. Because if you're underneath the dashboard, he'd never know if I was driving east or west. <laughs> I remember we went through Cheyenne, Wyoming on our trip. Because he very carefully mapped this trip out so that I would love the west, you know. And we, we went down through San Francisco. He met his best friend in San Francisco that he'd known years ago beat him up in the park. I could not believe it, you know. By the time we got down here, got down to Los Angeles, I was just at the end of my rope. And all I could do, I did a lot of thinking when I was driving that car across this country. I thought, I got to get rid of this alcohol. Well, I know he's not. I got to get rid of this guy. There's something wrong with him. Does anybody know how hard it is to get rid of an alcoholic? <laughs> It's like gum stuck on your hand, you know. You keep throwing it out and it keeps staying there. Keep coming back. That's where they got that from. <laughs> keep coming back to that Al-Anon. She'll take care of you. I know. <laughs> we finally did get down here to, down to L.A. And uh, 
It was going to be the last three years of Jack's drinking, uh, but we didn't know that yet. And he, by this time, was truly physically sick as well as mentally. He, um, and I drove him right into the middle of hippie heaven, for heaven's sakes. Uh, <laughs> he, he just, you know, he was not well enough to work. The only thing he was really well enough to do is every morning he went down and got the one ads for me. And then he drove me to all these interviews, and I finally got a job. It was a good job. I kept it for 24 years. <laughs> but uh, we were grateful when I got that job. But Jack, by this time, was truly, I mean, as I say, hippie heaven. Here he was in the middle of L.A., Sunset Boulevard. And uh, he used to, he had long stringy hair by this time because he wasn't well. He had a beard, a mustache. He wore uh, flowered shirts with ruffles. He had two pair of pants he used to alternate black and red brocade and gold brocade. <laughs> he wore sunglasses at all times, movies, any place. He always had his dark glasses on. And he had a shoulder bag. He came up to my office once, and the girls, when he left, the girls said, we didn't know you were married to a hippie. I said, I didn't know it either. <laughs> and the kids used to, you know, my one daughter used to say, it's so embarrassing when Daddy takes me up to my friend's house. They want to know if it's my brother. And I said, well, what do you tell him? She said, I tell him it's my brother. I don't want him to know it's my father. <laughs> I, and it was really, you know, I spent an awful lot, because I, I really believed that Jack was doing that to me. He was just trying to embarrass me. He was trying to make my life miserable. Why else would he dress like that? And he always used to carry a shoulder bag all the time, you know? He's walking around like that, you know? And it was, it was really bad. And... Uh, the kids were embarrassed by him. He was out of the house more than he was in. So I decided I'd get back at him in a few ways. He'd be in bed at, in the morning, and I'd take his mail and forward it to his favorite bar. He'd come home and say, you know, you embarrassed me. I went in for a beer, and they gave me my mail. I said, well, you spend more time there than you do here. You might as well use that for your address. Or people would call for him, and I'd say, uh, Oh, call him up at Sloan's or Barney's Beanery. He's never here, you know. I was, I, I had lost all of the charm if I ever had any. <laughs> I used to love life, and all of a sudden, life was a burden. You know, it is hard. You know, you gotta, I would never leave my children alone, so I had to pack these kids up at one o'clock in the morning, and I had to go out and check where Jack was before the bars closed. Now, I never went in after him. I just wanted to know where he was. So these poor little kids that have to get in the car, they really, <laughs> so half of them don't even, they don't even remember it. They were just sleeping, you know. And we'd go and we'd look and I'd see where he was. Found out later, he used to drink in one bar and park his car in another one just to fool me, you know. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had a lot of trouble together without even knowing we were doing it to each other. And um, it, it was just, and it, things were happening too that were very strange. And especially if you don't know about alcoholism. We'd all be sitting in the room, and the phone would not ring, and Jack would pick it up and have a conversation. <laughs> the kids and I would look at each other. It was always the kids and I against him. And uh, we'd look at each other. And he'd call me up, and he'd say, uh, I'm at the beach. And I'd say, you're supposed to be home for dinner. How'd you get to the beach? And he'd say, I don't know. I have never in my life gone any place. I didn't know how I got there. What do you mean you don't know how you got to the beach? I didn't know about blackouts. I didn't know about hallucinations. I thought he was lying to me. 
One of the kindest things that was ever said to me when I got to this program is I said to my sponsor, that man has lied to me always. How am I ever going to trust him? And she said, he's never lied to you. He has always told you the truth to the best of his ability at the time. The fact that he was an alcoholic and couldn't carry through doesn't mean he's a liar. And I love that woman for saying that because that was my road to being able to learn to trust him. And... um, But things were really bad in that house. He was out of the house more than he was in it. Um, He finally, uh, our oldest daughter, who had left the house when she was old enough, she had moved to Phoenix. And she came back one weekend. And she looked around and she said, Mom, how can you live like this? And I discovered something about me. If If you don't point it out to me and you don't say anything, then I can bury my head and I can ignore it and I can avoid it. But if you point it out to me, then I have to admit it, and I have to do something about it. And she said, look at this house. And I looked at the house we were living in. It was a rented house. And we were about three months behind in the rent. The roof had leaked, and we'd moved John out of his bedroom, and I'd torn the rug up and thrown it out the window. And the electric wasn't working. The plumbing was bad. But if you're three months behind in the rent, you don't call the landlord and tell him to come fix anything. You have a very low profile hoping they will forget they even own the house. (laughs) And uh, I looked at the house, and then she said, look at the kids, look at the little kids. Because Kathy is eight years older than John, and, you know, so she was, it was sort of like the big one and the little ones. And I looked at John, and John was going to be 12 years old, and John used to come home from school and go in his room and lock the door and go in his closet and lock the closet and sit on the shelf of his closet. He was so scared to live in that house. And Christy, who was the middle one, Christy, she used to call me every day and say, what's for dinner? And I'd tell her what to take out of the freezer. And she says to this day, I never taught her how to cook. I just taught her how to defrost. (laughs) But she had taken over the house and taken Melinda, who was going to be seven, and Christy was just going to be nine. She had taken over my responsibilities because I was too busy out there looking for Jack and worrying about Jack and trying to fix Jack because I just knew that if I could fix that man, everything would be okay. And it had to be something I was doing. I'd sit at night sometimes and I'd say, God, if I really love him, why don't I let go of him? Why don't I let him go out there and find somebody who can really help him? I've got to be doing something wrong. And then he'd come home and tell me he loved me and I was the only person he was comfortable with and I believed him and I got more and more confused as the, as the years went by. And But when Kathy pointed these things out, I looked at her and I said, you know, you're right. And that night when Jack got home, we told him he had to leave. And he left that night. But I hadn't been to Al-Anon yet. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, I got a phone call from a kid that was in the neighborhood. He said, Jack was on his way home, and he got arrested. He wants you to go down to the jail to bail him out. It's okay. So off I went to the jail to bail him out. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing about al We get very shy when we get to the program, but it doesn't phase us at all to go out at 2 o'clock in the morning and find a bail bondsman, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I went down to the jail to get the hippie out. <laughs> and uh, jail, they gave me a, a big argument because they really didn't think that my husband was in that jail. And I said, yeah, I know he's here. Some kid told me he's in this jail. And they said, no, I don't think so. We don't think we've got your husband in this jail. And I said, well, I know he's here because his purse is laying right over there. (laughs) And uh, for some reason, they would not let me bail him out. And I went home. 
And uh, I had them promise me they'd call me, but they didn't. And you know, when I think about it now, everything I'm going to tell you from now on is I don't know why. It's almost 25 years since I've asked why. I don't care why. I just know this works. I went home, and the next morning Jack got home just when I was leaving for work. And I said, Jack, you know, we were right. I shouldn't have gone down to that jail. I should leave you alone. You have to leave this house. We can't live like this. And I had thrown that man out hundreds of times. In, in one hour, I would scream at him seven times, get out of my life, I want a divorce. But that morning, I stood there calmly and quietly, and I looked at him, and I said, we can't live like this anymore. And I didn't care if he went down to Main Street and sat in the gutter. I didn't care if he married another woman. I didn't care if he married two other women. I didn't even care if he got to be a millionaire, which is what he always told me was going to happen if I threw him out. He'd be a millionaire and I'd never get any of it, you know. <laughs> that morning, I didn't even care if I didn't get his millions. And um, he got a job <laughs> and he made a lot of money when he was about 10 years sober. He said, see, Gene, I told you I was going to make a lot of money. I said, yeah, what a long-term investment this was. <laughs> but uh, so I, I left and I went to work. And I don't know to this day, I can't tell you why, I have no explanation for it, but I went to work and I got out the phone book and I looked up alcoholism. And I called a woman and I talked to her on the phone. I told her about Jack and I told her about me. And she told me that I was probably not married to a crazy person and not married to the SOB I thought he was, but that I was married to a man who had the disease of alcoholism for which there was help. And... Uh, I was just gonna, she gave me a phone number for him to call, tell me to go home and ask him if he wanted help and give him the phone number. And I said, okay, I would. And I was hanging up the phone. She said, wait, wait, don't hang up that phone. And I said, what's the matter? She said, you know, you always haven't done everything right over the years. But it's okay, because you didn't know any better. But there is a place for you to go, and that's Al-Anon. And she made me write down the number of Al-Anon and promise her that I would go to a meeting. And I said I would. And I went home that lunchtime, and I woke up Jack. I also didn't know about passing out. I never could understand why it was so hard to wake him up. You know, but I got him awake, and I said to him, Jack, do you want help? <laughs> and he said, yeah. <laughs> he says he wanted help just to sit up, you know. <laughs> but he said yes. So I said, well, I've got a phone number for us to call. So I went in, and I dialed the number, and he came behind me, and I said, this guy said, let me talk to him. So I handed Jack the phone. And uh, I heard Jack say some things. And, and then Jack said to me, would you drive me up to Oxnard? He said, because I don't think I can make it, because I just promised this guy I wouldn't drink until I got there. I said, sure. And I called work, and I told him. And, uh, and I, I drove him up to Oxnard. We sat in a room. And on the way up to Oxnard, he said to me, uh, you know, if this has anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, I am not staying. I said, well, I honestly don't think so because I looked up alcoholism. I didn't call, I didn't call Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so we got up there and because Jack's father was an alcoholic and he was an AA, but mostly he was just cranky. And we discovered he really never got a lot of sobriety because <laughs> he was in Indiana and we were on the West Coast. So we never really understood it. But that was our example sort of of AA. And also Jack was convinced that he'd never do anything that his father did. And we got up there, and we sat down in this room, and I knew nothing about, one, I knew nothing about alcoholism. I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. 
nothing about any of it. And there's a picture on the wall up there in Oxnard of a man crawling up some steps. And Jack says, you remember that picture? And Jack said, see, I told you it was AA. There's those 12 steps. I thought, oh, boy, we got here just in time. This fellow came in and talked to him and convinced him to stay there. So I left. I went home real quick. And he also gave me instructions. He said, tell everybody I had a nervous breakdown. Don't tell them I'm an alcoholic. And I said, okay. So I went back to tell everybody I had a nervous breakdown. You know, we're being anonymous. Here he's getting well. And uh, that was on Monday. On Wednesday, I got a call from Jack. He said, remember all those things I told you about Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, yes. He said, forget it. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm in the right place. I could hear it was different. We went up that Sunday and picked him up, and we went for a picnic in Ojai because they suggested we should stop and Jack should explain to the children. And Jack was very dramatic. He explained to the children at great lengths about being an alcoholic and what it meant. The seven-year-old looked up at him when he was finished and said, what you're telling us, Dad, is you're a drunk, right? <laughs> Do you want to punch a little mouth shut? <laughs> and uh, we brought him home. And uh, that, that Friday before this happened, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting because I promised this woman. So I called, and I found out that there was one on Friday night near my house. I went all dressed up. I thought it was a one-night seminar. <laughs> I went with a pad and a paper. I wanted a typewritten list on the care and feeding of a newly sober alcoholic. <laughs> when I got to that meeting, nobody was terribly interested in the alcoholic. They kept asking me questions about me, you know. But there was one woman who came up to me and she said, uh, who's the problem drinker you're coming to Al-Anon for? And I said, it's my husband. It was the first time I ever said that. And from that day to this day, I've never been ashamed of loving an alcoholic. And during that same meeting, someone said something about an alcoholic. That same woman raised her hand and said, you know, you can all do a lot worse than love an alcoholic. That woman became my sponsor, and she's the one who changed my life. After that first meeting, she said, do you have any children at home? I said, yeah, we still have three at home. She says, well, they go to Alateine. I said, okay, what is it? I'm one of those people that when I walked in that room, I felt it. I knew I was where I belonged. So anything they wanted me to do, I was willing. So I, um, I said, where's the meeting and where, you know, what should we do? So we went to the ne that next Tuesday after we'd picked Jack up on Sunday. We all went. I went to Al-Anon. He went to the AA meeting. The girls went to a preteen meeting, and John went to Alateen. And uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> we did that for the, almost the first two years of our, of our program. And um, after that first meeting, I called this woman. I, I don't know if she was actually my sponsor yet or not, because I was only a few days on the program. But she became her and she in our house. Um, I called her, and I said, well, the girls really loved it. They're going to go, but John doesn't like it, so he's not going to go. She said, oh, yeah, John, if John lives in your house. He goes to Alateen. I said, oh, and I went out to Jack, and I said, she said he has to go. <laughs> it's okay. So the next Tuesday when I got home from work, uh, John wasn't there. He had a little league game. He got home, and he, I never saw a child so dirty. I found out later he had literally hosed himself and rolled in the dirt so he wouldn't have to go to the meeting. So I called her, and I said, listen, John just got home. He's filthy. We'll never get him cleaned up in time. I'll bring him next week. 
She says, oh, no, clean them up, bring them. So I went out to Jack and said, she said he has to go. <laughs> so we cleaned that boy up and we took him. And the next Tuesday I got home. He didn't have a game, so he was in bed with his pajamas on, sick. So I called her and I said, you know, John's not feeling too well. I'll bring him next week. She said, does he have a fever? Which was her only excuse not to go to a meeting. I said, no, he doesn't have a fever. Just dress him. He's better in a meeting than he is at home. So I went out to Jack and I said, <laughs> she said, you ever try to take a 12-year-old boy someplace he doesn't want to go? And, uh, but whatever happened for John, the next week he was there early to set up the chairs. He heard what he had to hear. But you know something? If that boy had never gone back to the program, do you know what that lady did for Jack and I? She taught us to be consistent, and she taught us to be a team for the first time. And that's the way she taught me everything in this program. She started changing my life. I'd call her up, and I'd tell her how rotten Jack was, and she'd tell me what I did wrong, till finally I'd call her and say, well, I'm going to tell you what happened. Now you tell me what I did wrong this time. I told her one time, I said, listen, if you like him so much, why don't you try to live with him? <laughs> she said, no thanks. <laughs> but she started teaching me how to be a mother. I didn't know what being a mother meant. I had mothered Jack. She, said, she started off by saying, Jack doesn't need a sponsor. Those children need a sponsor. Let Jack alone. He's an adult. Because if it was cold out, I'd say, Jack, wear a sweater. I assumed the children were smart enough to wear a sweater. <laughs> so I had to start letting Jack get cold till he found out he needed a sweater and uh, telling the kids to wear a sweater. And uh, I started taking, taking back the house from them. And I started doing the things that I was supposed to do. And, you know, self-worth. I don't think you can get up in the morning, sit up on the edge of the bed and say, today I'm working on self-worth doesn't work that way. It just happens slowly. I remember when Christy came home one day and I was busy cooking because we had to get to a meeting and I had a baby on my hip and I'm, you know, and she was very upset because she'd been rejected by someone at school. And uh, instead of saying to her, oh, for God's sakes, Christy, you're young. There's a lot of fish in the sea, which is what I was thinking. I stopped and I sat her down and I talked to her. And I told her about Al-Anon's and rejection and those feelings. And I told her those things that I learned at Al-Anon. And I heard her share an Alateen, and she talked about that night. And she said, you know, my mother didn't tell me there's a lot of fish in the sea. My mother explained to me. I felt good about myself. Our youngest daughter used to have temper tantrums. My way of handling a temper tantrum was to go in and yell louder than that child about the temper tantrum. And I didn't do it one night. I went in and instead I put my arm around her and said, what can I do for you, sweetheart? And I felt good about me. And when John started to ask me for advice, because John had lost all respect for me by the time we got to this program, because I tried to make him take Jack's place, and I made him feel inadequate. And he forgave me for that. And he started respecting me, and I felt good about myself. And I started to get some self-worth. And I was willing to go forward then and try to build a relationship with Jack. And that was not an easy thing to do because we had a lot of things that went on between us, a lot of things we'd said to each other and a lot of things that we'd done to each other. And I had to forgive. You can't give up a resentment unless you forgive. And I had to learn how to forgive. And in order to forgive, I had to get compassion. And the way I was taught compassion is my sponsor would say, but for the grace of God, go you. And I'd say, you're right. 
I'm grateful I'm not an alcoholic. I'm grateful I love an alcoholic, but I'm grateful I'm not an alcoholic. And I could have compassion for him. And so I could forgive him and I could give up the resentment. And then she would say, you know, she would say things to me like, you know, for the rest of your life together, you will always have an advantage over that man. When there's problems, any kind of problems, you will just have to deal with the problem. That man has to deal with the problem and the disease of alcoholism. And that makes it easy for me to take on a lot of burdens and to understand when he has a lot of trouble taking on a burden. And I can learn, and I can forgive, and I can love. And I never knew about unconditional love. I thought if I loved you, you had to do it my way. And I found out that, that does, that's not what love is. Love means I love you just the way you are. And I want to tell you that none of my children <laughs> is doing what I intended them to do when I held them in my arms when they were babies. But you know, every one of them is okay, and I just love them just the way they are. And uh, John, who had a lot of trouble in school, he finally got out of high school, and then he went to a junior college, and he flunked out of that. So he decided to go to work. He wasn't going to go to college. He worked for a year. And he came back and decided he wanted to try junior college again. And he did. He went to LACC for two years, and he graduated. And by this time, we had about eight years on the program. And he came to Jack, and he said to Jack, he said, you know, Jack, I'm, Daddy, it's impossible, I know. But if I could, I would graduate from Notre Dame just because you did. And, you know, the things that happen on this program, the miracles. Jack had been in the seminary, and he had left the seminary, and one of the men who was in the seminary with him was a big deal with the Holy Cross Fathers, and Jack called him. And that fellow had 10 years of sobriety, and he wrote a letter for John. And John went to the University of Notre Dame as a junior transfer. And in 1982, 30 years after Jack graduated from Notre Dame, we went and watched John graduate. When that boy got to this program, he didn't have a chance. We sat there, and you know most of those people that were sitting there, they thought they deserved to be there just because they paid the bill. Jack and I knew it was a miracle, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon and Alateen, that that boy was there. Today, John's working on a newspaper. He married an Al-Anon. They have two little Al-Anons. <laughs> <laughs> he owns a house. And I pick up those children every day. John's little boy is seven years old. He's got face of an angel. He got in the car the other day and he said, Grandma, I had one hell of a day at school today. <laughs> <laughs> and they're great children. And Christy, Christy found out in Alateen, they taught her that she could do God's work, but not God's job. And they told her to give the house back to me. And they told her to take care of herself, that that was my responsibility. And she was sure that she could do it much better than me, and she probably could have. But uh, she, um, she went to, to school, and she was very bright, and she earned all kinds of scholarships and grants. And she was out of high school when she was 16, and she went to Santa Cruz for one year. Then she transferred to UCLA and decided to be an attorney. And she went off to Washington, D.C., and she was there for three years, and she graduated from law school. She was on law review, she got married, and she had a baby. Now that's an Al-Anon. And uh, she came back home that summer and she studied for the bar and she passed the bar with a new baby, she passed it. And uh, when you pass the bar in Los Angeles, 
everybody, there's about 600, six to 700 people that pass at the same time. Everybody goes down to the Shrine Auditorium, and there's a judge down there, and you hold up your hand in mass, and you all are sworn in, which to me seems so anticlimactic after all those years of studying and all that money spent. But you know something? If you are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon and Alateine, that's not the way your life goes. Don Gates, who's Jack's second sponsor, he wasn't at that time. He had wrote the first letter for Christy to go to law school because he'd known her since she was a little girl. He called and he said, you know something? If Christy would like me to, I would be honored to swear her in in my chambers. So everybody else went to the Shrine Auditorium. And Jack and I and Christy went to Don Gates <laughs> chambers and he swore her in to be an attorney. And that's the miracle of this program. Our lives are so touched with so much. Um, Melinda's had the most trouble. She still has a little bit, but she's coming around. She's going to be 33 years old this year. It's about time. Uh, uh, and she's, she's finally got somebody that she's involved with who doesn't have more problems than her. And I'm grateful. <laughs> uh, she ran away from home when we were seven years on the program. I could not believe that. Seven years, we go to meetings, we work these steps. How can our child run away from home? What are you people going to think of me? You know? Well, I wasn't going to tell anybody. I was just going to keep it a secret till we got her back. But big mouth Irish over here, he tells everybody everything. And, uh, <laughs> and he was right and I was wrong. Because when I told you, nobody... Not one person shook their head, raised an eyebrow, or called me a bad mother. Instead, you put your arms around me and you comforted me, and you told me what to do. They told us, don't Jack and I fight with each other, because it isn't our fault. And she came back home after two weeks when we didn't know where she was, and Jack always says that was the toughest time of his sobriety. And she came home and she stayed until she was old enough to leave. And, you know, I learned then, somehow, I had had the higher power, and I had had a spiritual program, but now I really had one, because I found out the higher power is in our life, no matter what, good or bad. And I am not the judge of good and bad. And I am not the judge of what the answer is. You know, I'm so spiritual. Boy, if I have a couple of bucks in the bank and, you know, and things are going good, I'm so spiritual, you can hardly touch me. But the test is to be spiritual when it isn't. And you know what? I'm finding it easier and easier to do that. And it's so rewarding because it makes you feel so good inside. You never get that knot back again. And uh, we've had ups and downs on this program. I told you Jack had a business. He made a lot of money. We went to the New Orleans International. We went to San Francisco, to Canada. Boy, we had bucks. He was tipping, so I thought those bellhops were going to get in the room with us, you know. <laughs> he was, you know, we had a ball. We had a good time with that money. It only lasted about a year and a half. <laughs> it was in the oil business, and that went down the drain. But you know something? I went to Texas, and I gal picked me up, and we were just chatting, and she our stories were so similar. Her husband had been in the oil business also in Texas at a different you know, angle, and she talked about how they had saved their money, so they had, really, they had never done anything with it. They'd never gone anyplace or done the things we did, but that they lived for two years afterwards. And I said, well, you know something? Jack and I had all that fun with it, and we also lived for two years afterwards. And I learned from that, you know, i got to trust this program. i got to trust that you love me enough 
And during that time when Jack had that business and that money, he gave away so much, which was so great, to so many people. And you know, in these last few years, we have gotten so much from so many people because we needed it. And it's just, just the way it is. That's the way this program works, you know. And uh, we've just, you know, and I, I, I got to my steps. I did my amends. I got to my men's step, and I made amends to Jack, mostly by just allowing Jack to be Jack, you know, without telling him, oh, I wouldn't hang around with that guy if I were you. He's going to get you in trouble. I let Jack find out that that guy was going to get him in trouble, you know. And Jack and I became two adults living together for the first time instead of, a, you know, a mother and a father and a child and a, you know. But it was two adults living together. And I made amends at work, mostly by just working. Do you ever work with an Al-Anon? They're always on the phone looking for the alcoholic. They're negative. So I was positive. I didn't call Jack all day. I did my work. Um, I made amends to my friends. And I made amends to my family to the best of my ability. Then I got to my children. They say this is a perfect program, but it's not. You can't make amends to your children. I thought about it. I prayed about it. How was I going to do it? You can't make for up for those open school nights you didn't go to. You can't make up for those times when they tried to tell you what was going on when you weren't there and they were scared to be alone. Because if you listened, then you'd have to do something about it. I, I can't make up to these children what I took away from them, what they've lost. I can't give them back the trust that I took away. And I said, okay. I didn't even tell anybody what I discovered, that this wasn't perfect. I didn't even tell my sponsor because I was just grateful for what I had gotten from this program. And I did a lot of praying about it. And uh, I went to a meeting with Jack one Sunday morning. I've never been to that meeting before, and I had never been there before, and I've never been back again. I was sitting there minding my own business, and um, a woman turned around. She was real mad. She said, are you an Al-Anon? Like that. I said, yeah. She said, well, I'm an alcoholic. And I want to start a preteen meeting for my daughter and your central offices. I can't do it without an Al-Anon. So will you do it? I said, sure. I say yes to everything in this program. Going home. I said, I don't want to do this. She had already gotten the park 12 noon on Saturday. I said, that's my day off. I don't want, to, I don't want a bunch of kids. I just get rid of my kids. And I argued. But I said, okay. I said, I'd do it. So I called up my friend who was an Alateen sponsor, and she went with me that next Saturday because we decided that that mother shouldn't be there because her daughter was there. And we went in there. <laughs> First little girl that came in, I was scared to death of those kids. First little girl that came in, long braids, hands on hips, said, I thought this was for children. And Rebecca explained to her that, yes, it was, but that they had to have adults there and so on. She said, well, I'm going to tell you something right now. If this is anything like the brownies, I'm not staying. <laughs> and I will never sing Foo Foo the Rabbit again. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten into? And a couple of, there was only about three or four children there that first time. So we kind of just went around the room and told our stories, introduced ourselves a little bit. When it got to this little girl, she told a story about how when she was, when she was just a couple of years younger, her mother was still drinking, and her mother took her in the bathroom at a party and handed her a knife and told her to kill her. She says, my friend Tony came in and took the knife away and put me to bed. I'd rather go to bed early than kill my mother. And I thought, oh, my God, I know why I'm here. You know, there's some, you know, I, had, I didn't know. I hadn't heard my children. I didn't know what was going on at that end. And so I did that little meeting for about, I did it for 12 years total, and I did it for the first two years. 
and I prayed a lot about that meeting. And the, about two years into it, I thought to myself, you know something? I tell those children to wear a sweater when it's cold, to put on their glasses if they need them to read. I listen to them. I take them places. I show up every single week for them. I am making amends to my children. This is a perfect program. It really is. And I see my children with their children. And you know, the pattern is broken. They don't act. None of them scream at their children the way I screamed at them. They all, you know, little Emily, who's seven years old, her mother and father are getting a divorce, and uh, the fellow that she's going with has two little children. And the one little boy, the little boy said to Emily, you know, I'm really mad at your mother. It's all your mother's fault that my, that my daddy left my mother. And Emily didn't say anything, and she just went, and she said to Michael later, she said, Michael, you better talk to your son. He's confused about things. He thinks it's my mother's fault. And she said, you better talk to him, but don't tell him that I said anything. So Michael said, well, I certainly won't tell him, but why don't you want me to tell him? She says, I don't want to be put in the middle. <laughs> That's seven years old. That's her mother's program. You know, it, it is never too late to change the patterns. We came here so, you know, so badly damaged, and we got well, and we share that, that health. Our oldest daughter never really did get to the program, but when she calls, we just give her a program. She thinks we got so smart over these years, and it's great. And our, our oldest granddaughter is 22, and she, and she also has a son who's 17, and then the others are all next to us. They're in Phoenix, and the other four are all down close to us. And I get to pick the two up every day from school, and I love it because they depend on me and they trust me, and I feel so good about it. And uh, life has become, you know, it's not easy. It's not always easy. We lost a house on this program. We've lost everything. The only thing we haven't lost is we haven't lost each other. And we'll always have each other because we believe in this program and we believe, I believe that there is a higher power and I believe there is a higher power who wants good for me. And sometimes he wants to, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like it, but it's okay. And you know, I came to you almost 25 years ago and I came all dressed up and all I wanted was a typewritten list just to make things better for that day. And instead what you did was you loved me and you gave me a life, and I thank you for it.